Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's time for the biggest week of the sports calendar. The start of hockey, basketball opening night, football, both college and pro in full swing, and the San Diego Padres are playing in the league championship series for some playoff baseball. You can use our promo code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 100% welcome bonus when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is October 19th, according to my count. May not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is you may be listening. We are recording here following the end of Game 1 between San Diego and Philadelphia in the NLCS. I'm still draped in my Fernando Tatis jersey after watching a quick baseball game, only two hours and 40 minutes. It's the shortest playoff game I've seen all year, and a game that only had four total hits between the Phillies and San Diego. Got the loss, but game two is going to be played probably by the time most of you are listening to this, so I will say I will save the analysis with that series uh, game to game, because game to game analysis always ages poorly. So, We'll save the baseball game-to-game analysis, but just know that uh, Padres are down 1-0 at the time of recording, and I said I didn't go in having any expectations, and I will continue to be immensely grateful for everything that's happened with San Diego so far in the playoffs. Today's going to be a Sports Radio Wednesday here on the show. We haven't had a Sports Radio Wednesday since September. It's the middle of October, and it's a perfect time to have a Sports Radio Wednesday because it is the busiest month on the sports calendar. And what better way to do a sports radio Wednesday for two hours? We've got two hours of a sports radio Wednesday here with our friend Juju Talks Sports. He has a YouTube channel called The Slump Buster. He and I do stuff on that channel all the time that you can check out. Usually at least once a week we record uh, about a couple hours worth of content, and we're going to bring that couple hours of content to you here on the Take It Easy podcast. So we're going to start off talking about the Los Angeles Dodgers losing to my beloved San Diego baseball team, and we are going to have a conversation about the Padres and Phillies from a macro level perspective. This was recorded before game one was played, so note that some of the analysis has aged great, some of the analysis has aged about, well, I don't think anything's aged poorly after one baseball game, but just know it was recorded before 
the first game of the series, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Carolina Panthers and everything going on there, where I get to once again go on my Panthers rant that I copied and pasted last week while talking about Matt Rule. We're going to talk about the Panthers, we're going to talk about the Los Angeles Rams, we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors, and the extensions for Jordan Poole and Draymond Green, and not Draymond Green, Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, and not Draymond Green. We're going to talk about that, we're going to talk about the Lakers, we're going to talk about the Miami Heat, Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo, and Jimmy Butler, and everything going on with that team headed into the NBA season. We're going to talk about Alabama and the changing landscape of college football in the SEC. It's actually one of the best segments I think we've done, listening back to it. I think you're really going to enjoy the Alabama segment if you stick around for it on the show. We've got seven segments coming at you. It's a sports radio show. Each one's going to be about 12 minutes within the sports radio format, and I think y'all are going to enjoy Sports Radio Wednesday because you guys enjoy the Sports Radio Wednesdays when we do them on the show. So we're going to do a double dose of Sports Radio Wednesday here with our friend Juju Talk Sports. All right, everybody, I am super duper excited to tell you about andcaller.com. You know how I always say support our dreams on the show? Andcaller is literally supporting our dreams. They are covering expenses for Blake, Jude, and I to meet up in Salt Lake City and watch Arizona play Utah. This road trip was a joke that Blake, Jude, and I came up with back in August. And thanks to Andcaller, it's actually going to happen. If you go to andcaller.com, and there's a link in the description to this episode, you can shop all of your wardrobe needs. They've got shirts, polos, blazers, pants, socks, and more. My new wardrobe is coming in this week. Super excited about that. For our listeners, Andcaller is offering two promotions for you. Two promotions. Number one, all orders over $100. Andcaller is going to cover the shipping. $10 to $15 free. They'll cover the cost. And two, any orders of $40 or more will get a free tie when you use our promo code EASY. That's E-A-S-Y with the link in this episode at andcaller.com. That's andcaller.com. Support our dreams by supporting the people who are help making those dreams possible. Episode 4. The Holy Dodger Empire continues their reign over the West. In previous years, the Holy Dodger Empire dismantled the once great Royal Cardinals, establishing a new power within the galaxy. The Holy Dodger Empire defeated the Royal Cardinals, invaded the Mill of Waukee, and vanquished the 107-win Giants. In the meantime, the Holy Dodger Empire pillaged both the Purple Rockies and the Backs of Diamond in Arizona. These invasions increased the Empire's wealth tenfold. Their resources are unmatched, their power is unquestioned. With the West and the Central firmly in control, the Holy Dodger Empire sets their sights on a new conquest, the Eastern Empire State. If the Holy Dodger Empire defeats Master Cohen and his Met army of queens, there will be nothing left to stop them from conquering the galaxy. To the south, a small resistance forms in San Diego. While outnumbered and outresourced, the resistance fights for their very existence against the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. It's a changing time in the galaxy, 
the once great Imperial Nationals of Washington have fallen. Years earlier, the Imperial Nationals once defeated the Holy Dodger Empire at the Battle of Strasbourg. Now, they find themselves bankrupt and selling pieces to the highest bidder. In this collapse, the Holy Dodger Empire captured a great captain known as Mad Max, who helped strengthen the Holy Dodger Empire's hold on the galaxy. However, Mad Max has escaped and defected to Master Cohen and the Met Army of Queens. He will spend whatever years he has left fighting to dismantle the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. And now, the legendary Imperial Captain Juan Soto has joined the Resistance after paying his debt to Kara the Hutt. To San Diego, Captain Juan Soto brings with him the Imperial Nationals' mighty Josh Bell. Joining Captain Soto is Lord Hader, the supreme closer of the Mill of Waukee, called to fight by the message of the Resistance and the possibility of bringing balance to the Force. The Resistance has paid a heavy price yet they have never been closer to defeating the Holy Dodger Empire. Your San Diego Padres eliminated the number one seeded Los Angeles Dodgers. But it doesn't stop there. No, 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 no. It doesn't stop there. The Philadelphia Phillies knocked off the defending World Series champion, Atlanta Braves. So we have the San Diego Padres and the Philadelphia Phillies set for this NLCS. A NLCS that I don't think anyone, I don't think any baseball pundit predicted. I can't find any credible baseball pundit that had this matchup. And if you exist, I want you to raise your hand. I want you to put it out there. If maybe you had one of these teams, maybe you had one of these teams, but both? No, if you did, you are Nostradamus. You you have a crystal ball looking into the future. You are from the future because there is no way in hell you told me the Phillies and Padres would be headlining our NLCS this year. I, I'm shook. I am shook, my friend. Speaking of that, you guys are minus 118, according to FanDuel, to win this series. So Padres World Series? God, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, you want to get too ahead of yourself or you want to temper expectations again? I know you played it a little coy when we we're talking NLDS, but how are you feeling today? Uh, just all of the emotions have poured out and it's it's a celebration for days. Like it's, uh, I don't know, like Mardi Gras or something like that. I don't know. It's just, it's a celebration of my entire life when it comes to rooting for sports and uh, yeah we have to play another series now against the Phillies and I said coming into the the DS when we did our preview that uh I didn't make picks for the series and I didn't feel confident about a couple series but if you had to pin me down I might have gone over four picking wildcard series I think I might have taken Cleveland over the Rays but like pretty much I might have gone over four in picking those well I had the Dodgers but that was more of an emotional hedge. I had the Braves and I genuinely thought the Braves were going to win. The one thing that brings me solace is I said the team I had the most confidence in was the Astros. And I, I will say that I got that one uh, absolutely correct. But 
the Padres and Phillies being in the NLCS is just kind of ridiculous. And Philadelphia has been fantastic. Like the Padres are very easy to explain how they go from being a team that wins 89 games in the regular season to a team that's now in the CS. Their bullpen has pitched 17 innings. And until Max Muncie hit a sack fly yesterday, they had allowed zero runs. They went 21 consecutive batters retired in the Dodgers series with their bullpen. And by the way, they're eight, nine and one hitters of Ha-Sung Kim, Aaron, uh, Austin Nola and uh, Trent Grisham have an over a thousand OPS in the postseason so far. So that'll explain. And by the way, Juan Soto has been the unluckiest hitter in baseball in a postseason in three postseasons. His expected batting average and his expected on base percentage are the lowest compared to what it should be uh, in like three postseasons so far. So all of that combined explains how the Padres got there for the Phillies. I think the Phillies just might have been this team and we just kind of ignored them because what do the Phillies do well? They score a lot of runs and their starting pitchers give them quality outings at the top. And they've yeah. done exactly that and destroyed the Braves. And the Phillies. So we go back to that video we did, Dark Horse World Series favorites. And I mentioned the Phillies mostly because the big storyline of the offseason for them is look at what they're doing offensively. You know, you add a Kyle Schwarber, yeah, Nick Castellanos, you're adding some run production to your lineup. It was just going to be a matter of, can they defend? Can they get enough from this rotation? Was Zach Willers given enough at the top? You have Aaron Noah, who's given them some solid performances. And they've been able to kind of piece it together from there. And so that's how the Phillies got here. They just hit a hot streak. I believe it was around the All-Star break. And they just haven't stopped. And now they finally got Bryce Harper back. And he's hitting some bombs. <laughs> Reese Hoskins also just, God, that one that he had, the bat spike homer. He mm. let... That, that one shook the earth when he put that one in the ground. That was greater than any Gronk spike I've ever seen. And it, it, it just speaks to the heartbeat of Philadelphia. Talk about a great sports city. They were electric. They haven't seen anything like their, this from this Phillies team in years. Probably since the last time when Ryan Howard and Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley were in town and lighting things up. That was the last time the Phillies really could get excited about their baseball team. You signed Bryce a couple years ago. And to this point, it hadn't really worked out for you. You really hadn't gotten the production that you were looking for when you signed Bryce Harper, the chosen son, the man who was leading Sports Illustrated covers at the age of 16. And now you're seeing him in there. And we, we always mention this, Bryce, hell of a postseason performer, but it just never materialized into anything with the Washington Nationals. And now he's putting a team on his back, you know, at least the energy on this team, you know, putting him on his back and here here they are you did the production from a guy like JT Riomoto who has gotten really hot in the back half of the season you get a rookie out there like Alex Baum who is giving them some solid level production as well they haven't even gotten the best to have like a guy like Bryson Stott and still they're able to like have a lineup that just each and every outing puts some fear in you like when I mentioned in the preview I had Braves in four so I got the series wrong ultimately right but I told you, this offense will steal a game. It just turned out they stole three games just by being that much more dynamic than the Atlanta Braves could have ever planned for. And that's the biggest fear, I would say, for a Padres fan like yourself, is that this lineup is a scary lineup. Top to bottom can really put up run production. You talk about the. it's important that you guys are getting production from the bottom half of your lineup, too. 
will that carry into this series? If that carries into this series, then we could be in for some exciting slugfest between both teams. I will say the reason I like your Padres a little bit more is I trust the postseason rotation more than I trust the Phillies rotation. I still think that that holds up. Having a guy like uh, you, Darvish at the top, the hometown kid, Joe Musgrave. Hell, even Blake Snell will give you a solid postseason pr- performance. I-, I don't know what we're going to get consistently from Nola and Willer going into the further October. But, uh, hey, got him to NLCS. So it's it's a question of how much more do I want to doubt him? Because I was sleeping on both teams. So it's just like, who should I wake up to first? <laughs> yeah, I get that. And the Phillies did take care of one thing, which is their bullpen is not the worst in the history of baseball like it was in 2019. They've had terrible bullpens for years and years, and it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Their solution was just to beat the Braves by six runs in every game that they played in the series. Yeah, so they don't give never... them a chance. Just, just yeah. end it, right? <laughs> by the way, their bullpen's still messed up. They just had such a gigantic cushion that there was no scenario where the Braves could come back and catch them. Like... That that game, uh, game one, they should have won seven to one and it ended up being seven six. They were up eight two in game four. And I think the final score was eight four at the end of the game. Like they just the bullpen is a problem for Philly, which is why the starting pitching is going to be important. I will I will I'll throw out some love for Thor. Also, he, he might pitch a game three or a game four for Philadelphia as well, which in a long series where. From what I can tell, there's only one off day in the entire series. They're going to play seven games in eight days, potentially, if that's how this series plays out. Thor might be needing to get in there and deliver a big start. I got to give Podcast Brandon Marsh that- a shout out, too. I, I forgot to mention him. He was also, as it turns out, a big addition for this team. You know, adding a guy like Marsh who was struggling on the Angels, which is further proof, by the way, <laughs> just get anyone out of a Los Angeles Angels uniform and they will flourish. So Brandon Marsh, yeah. congratulations. It's so weird. It's so weird how that works out with the Angels. And it's weird that the Phillies are here because remember, I mean, going into this year, the Phillies had the longest playoff drought in baseball. Into 2020, the Padres and the Marlins both had the two longest playoff droughts and they broke both of them in the pandemic year. So like we're talking about two teams. I know it feels like the Phillies have semi-recently been to a World Series and won a World Series. Y'all, that was 15 years ago. Wait, like wait. Wasn't the Mariners the longer drought than the Phillies? Or are you talking NL? I'm talking NL, yes. Yeah, okay. Sorry, just they had the longest playoff drought in the National League, second longest only behind the Mariners, which also got broken this year. Shout out to the Mariners. And an 18-inning yeah. game with no runs. And... Just Philadelphia is in that interesting place. And again, baseball's weird. Baseball's random. The, the the odds reflect that. It's basically a toss-up series. And as a Padres fan, I won't allow myself to get overly excited or set expectations there because, <laughs> God, this is just everything beyond my wildest dreams. Not already. even as and the favorite? Not even as the favorite? You're not getting a little confident? I'm just I'm just excited that game's one that and chest. two. I'm just excited that if we go to a game six and a game seven, it will be in San Diego which will be the biggest games in the history of that franchise, which is hard to say given what just happened with the last two games in San Diego and uh, all the, all the craziness that comes out of that. Cause like that stadium was like a, a European soccer stadium. When they had the rain delay, they were singing along the songs. Everyone made the same joke from Top Gun with goose. And it's just, it was excellent. It was fantastic to see that. And I'm glad game six and seven will be in San Diego. If we so come to that place, because 
baseball's random and the odds reflect that this series is going to be a total toss up and Phillies are a nice little cushion instead of playing a hundred win teams like the Padres have played in every round of the playoffs and somehow I mean they, they they've kind of handily nice beat every cushion. team nice little cushion he says Philadelphia are you going to let that stand are you going to let that Philly, stand that Philadelphia be, that's going to be in quotes in the comment section that one phrase nice little cushion I mean, Philadelphia. The Padres are hosting a playoff series for the first time in, I believe, thirty something years that they've been a a favorite going into a playoff series. I mean, Philadelphia is incredible. Philadelphia's offense is better than the Padres' offense. I will yeah, say that. Like, obvious. it's San. I mean, San Diego's only done this because Ha Sung Kim. Trent Grisham, who, by the way, Trent Grisham, who recorded 500 at bats this year, which is obviously a high number to hit because he's such a great defensive player. Second worst batting average in the history of baseball for someone who had 500 at bats. And now all of a sudden he's got a 400 on base percentage and a 1.4 OPS in the playoffs. Austin Nola, who for years has been the worst trade that Preller has made because they gave up Ty France and Andres Munoz, who's an amazing closer for the Mariners. Austin Nola's hitting 400 in the, in the playoffs. Even the worst hitter on the Padres, Jake, or, or for the first four games of the playoffs, Jake Cronenworth, who went 0 for 15 in the Mets series and game one against the Dodgers. He hit a homer in game two in Los Angeles. He hit the game winning RBI double to, to beat the Dodgers. Like, even the people who have been slumping have found ways to hit. But you know uh, you what? Same thing words, with the slumping, slumping on the slump buster? Yeah, to bust the slump. I want yeah. slumps on the slump buster. Uh, yeah, no slumps. Jake Cronenworth hitting. Jake Cronenworth getting it done. All these Padres getting it done. Profar's had home runs. The Phillies have kind of been the same thing, except the Phillies, we all knew their offense was ridiculous. Yeah. And I mean, when Gene Segura is your eight hitter, you have a really good offense. I just thought that the Braves would be able to overcome that. And I was incorrect. I was correct in suggesting that Nick Cassianos didn't forget how to play baseball, too. <laughs> Maybe they got him out of the Ben Simmons house. Maybe that was the key. Uh, all right, guy. Well, <laughs> well hey, we got to get a prediction in here, right? I, I know you hedged last time. How you feeling today, man? How you feeling? Are you going to are you well, gonna like last time and say they got swept just out of superstitious sports fandom? Well, I have to respect the curse, right? But now that the curse is broken and the Padres have eliminated the Dodgers in the greatest moment San Diego sports have experienced that feels like winning a championship. I'm going to say Phillies in four. That's, that's kind of my, uh, that's my pick on that one. I think the, the Phillies will win in four and, uh, I have no expectations going into this series and I will be an emotionally grounded Padres fan who will enjoy every moment that this opportunity provides for us. And I know I sound like I'm giving a press conference, but that, that is the decision I will have and not put my emotions out there if they lose. Only if they win will I experience the unbridled joy of 20 years of never making the playoffs in my entire childhood. Obviously, I just want a fun October series. We got a lot of fun this postseason. And I guess between the Philadelphia Phillies and the San Diego Padres, I hope that there's a lot of fun to be had there. Uh, give me a game seven that will go to the Philadelphia Phillies. I am going to go. I'm going to bank on this offense. I think that the production is there. And I just think that Bryce Harper is going to have his defining October series. I think that this is going to be one of those that's going to go down in history for what's sure to be a Hall of Fame career. But who knows? Manny Machado also came out, I think, his same rookie class. So between those two, that will also be like a nice little battle. I'm here for it. I'm here for it, baseball fans. 
Are you? These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. The Dodgers will win the World Series if we play a full season and there is a postseason. Wait. We are winning the World Series in 2022. No, what We're do you We're winning the World Series this year. Put it on record. The Los Angeles Dodgers had every right to be that confident. Dave Roberts had every right to be that confident. The Dodgers won 111 baseball games. That is tied for the fourth most in the history of baseball. They tied with like a 1920s Cubs team. And you know what? They lost. They lost. And by the way, like Padres fans are going to celebrate this like it's a championship. You're damn right, because we're a bunch of losers. And Dodgers fans, y'all lost to the losers. What does that make you? You guys have every right to dance on their graves today. The Dodgers, one of the most cocky, arrogant teams in baseball. And you're right, they, they've deserved it They, in the sense that win after win after win, record amount of wins this season. The Dodgers have done some historic things. But unless you come down with that commissioner's trophy... No one looks at you the same. No one looks at the 2001 Seattle Mariners and proclaims that the best team of all time because you know what? They couldn't get it done. People are going to look at this Dodgers team and just say they couldn't get it done. And we played Dave Roberts clip here to start off the recording. But Dave, like, what are you doing, man? You make a guarantee like that on March, March of this year, my birthday, March 24th. You give me this clip and I get to use that here on October 16th to celebrate the Dodgers getting eliminated. Listen, I'm a Giants fan, so I don't love, in general, the Padres succeeding. That's not something that I would go for on any other day, except when it is at the expense of the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's like Say something, it again. That's like a middle ground Say it again. that we could just kind of bring together at the expense of the Los Angeles Dodgers. I, I look around this one. Okay, so here's another thing I got to proclaim. I hope, as a Giants fan, as someone who has a rooting interest in the NL West, that the Dodgers never fire Dave Roberts. Just keep him <laughs> managing for as long as possible. Dave, you, you are my best friend in the entirety of Major League Baseball. You are someone that gives me a lot of joy because the disappointment the Dodgers face each and every October by virtue of your managing is nothing short of a delight. So thank you, Dave Roberts, for all that you do for this Giants fan based out here in Austin, Texas. The best part about Dave Roberts being the manager of that Dodgers team is that Dave Roberts lives in San Diego. Dave Roberts was the bench coach for the Padres. When San Diego fired Bud Black after like nine seasons, Dave Roberts was lined up to be manager of the Padres. And then he took the Dodgers job. Like it's just chef's kiss. Perfect. Dave Roberts didn't deserve a World Series this year because he <laughs> robbed baseball of a Clayton Kershaw perfect game. That alone. Baseball sin. <laughs> This is your reward. This is the payoff because when Dave Roberts pulled Clayton Kershaw from that perfect game, his excuse was, well, we're trying to win the World Series trophy, you know? If I have him pitch an 81st pitch, his arm will blow out and then we won't make it to the October 31st or whatever. There's a lot of people that, you know, are cheering for the Dodgers, not only just for today and Clayton to throw a no-hitter, but for the Dodgers to win the World Series. Well, guess what? You Dave, can make it there anyway. Dave, so now we can Dave, play the results. Yeah. 
Kershaw was going to give up that home run to Machado either way, man. It was going down the dis. It was going the way it was going because the San Diego Padres didn't just beat the Dodgers. They whooped that ass. They whooped that they got that ass. ass. Yep. Yeah. They, they got all up just, in there. Oh, it was so <laughs> great. Like for people who don't know, I'm from San Diego. I, I don't live there anymore, but I'm basically my earliest childhood memory was 2007 when the Padres lost a game 163 to Colorado where Matt Holiday never touched home. We know that he didn't touch home. There just wasn't replay replay review back then. The Padres never made the playoffs my entire childhood from age five to age 19, never made the playoffs. This, this win San Diego is going to celebrate it like a championship. And all of us agree. This feels like what winning a championship feels like, because this is Sacramento making the playoffs and beating Golden State in the first round. This is the Detroit Lions making the playoffs and beating the one C Green Bay Packers. Like we're going to celebrate this like we just won a goddamn championship because we are the worst team in baseball record. Well, your best player, well, your best player isn't even playing for you guys because he had a bad case of ringworm. How's that for another headline going he's not even allowed to be around the team as far as i'm concerned like because of the suspension he can't even be around the team for this it's just it's remarkable and i mean manny machado might win mvp he might not but he's the emotional spiritual leader the fact that he was on the dodgers and left to come to the padres and four years later beat the dodgers like it's it's yeah. just beautiful. Kyle, Kyle, you know, we, we've had this debate online be- between each other. You know, man, Manny Machado, is he a Hall of Famer, is he not? Well, this is a Hall of Fame moment, you know, beating the Los Angeles Dodgers, the one seed, knocking them out after you just beat the 100-win Mets. The Padres are having a run. There, There's no debate here. They're having a nice little run. And we'll get into the preview on another video. Yeah, check that one out on the channel. We'll get into the preview in the NLCS. But the Padres should go into this one as the favorites. That's something that the Padres can celebrate and kind of like say, wow, we we got to this point. We should be the favorites, which is a dangerous thing to have in the baseball playoffs because this October, like every October, has just been wild and fantastic (laughs) and everything that I love about postseason baseball. But the Padres are here. When they made all those trades at the deadline, when they put together this team at the deadline, this is what you wanted. This is the results. This is the fruits of the labor. We, we've talked about the GM. Is he a dick sometimes? Sure. But you know what? He's a dick that can build a team. It's paying off. Well, hey, it's paying off. You have an <laughs> NLCS appearance. That's something that 20 franchises out of Major League Baseball would be begging for, dying for. <laughs> you talk to a White Sox fan, how they're feeling today, or potentially a Yankees fan, how they may be feeling, or Red yeah. Sox, or all these other blue blood franchises and the Padres are the ones that advance, pull themselves out from the gutters, out from the sewers to make it to the NLCS and potentially grasp for that big trophy at the end. Congratulations. My hat's off to you, my friend. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And look, the the identity of San Diego and and the baseball team is changing because look, they spend a lot of money now. They're, They're competing in the same ways that big market teams do. But the identity is still there of a team that basically like it's not that the Padres are like cursed in terms of like they they get close and lose. They just never get close. They're just they're a minor league baseball team that happens to exist within this major league construct. And it took five years of concerted effort to I mean, really it took 10, but we could call it five to six, like rebuilding the team from scratch to be able to 
beat the Dodgers, which that is God unheard damn of. Dodgers. With with all their money, like the Dodgers might be one of the best run organizations in the history of North American sports and have more resources than anyone else. And for that to happen, for that to actually happen is just perfect, because like maybe this Padres turn this into like a run where they consistently make the playoffs and they're spending a lot of money and they behave like, say, the Astros or the Braves. But for right now, the identity is loser franchise 22 games worse than the Dodgers in the regular season this year they were 22 games worse than the Dodgers and for them to beat them in that way in San Diego by the way the first two playoff victories in San Diego since before I was born I was not born the last time the Padres won playoff games in San Diego it was the 1998 NLCS and for that to happen against the Dodgers in San Diego with that stadium looking like it's a European soccer stadium was just the coolest thing ever. And again, I said it, this is this is like a championship. This is genuinely like a championship. Emotionally, I'm just playing it like everything after this is gravy. You know, it, it feels like a championship, but let's not lose sight. You guys still have a chance at the actual thing. That still is within play. So congratulations. San Diego Padres for advancing, and thank you for the memories. Thank you for limiting the Dodgers. We all owe you guys a huge debt. If you are dancing on the grave of the Los Angeles Dodgers, we want to hear it below in the comment section. Leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel, follow us on all our social medias from Kyle Ledbetter and Juju. Stay safe, happy, and healthy. We'll see you on the preview. The Slumbuster guys are killing it. Half done. Third quarter is beginning now. Uh, this happens every time. It happens every time. But if you take a shot at the king, you best not miss. Tennessee didn't miss. They took down the Alabama Crimson Tide 52 to 49. There's a point in this game where Tennessee took a big lead. They were leading 28 to 10. And we're messaging back and forth on our little group chat. Oh, wow. Is Tennessee just going to smoke Alabama? And you messaged back. You had an interesting rhetoric. You're like, oh, I've seen too many times where Alabama's just down a couple touchdowns and ends up winning the game by a couple touchdowns. And at one point, it seemed likely it was just chaos at the end. Tennessee just comes out the victors uh, on an ugly game-winning field goal, by the way. This thing, I don't know how this thing made it over the crossbars. It, it looked like one of the genuinely worst kicks I have ever seen that has ever been considered good. It looked worse than even the double doink field goal, and it actually made it over the crossbar to give the Vols the victory. What is the reaction coming off of that performance by Tennessee and Alabama? Y'all, I don't know if Nick Saban is the man for this job. <laughs> I don't I don't know if Nick Saban is the man to lead this program into the future. There's always that person whenever Alabama ends up losing a single football game. But the reason you could point to this one and say that this was a I don't know if it's Bill O'Brien or Nick Saban, but Tennessee should have never gotten the ball at the end of that game. When you get to third and 10 and Tennessee has those timeouts, don't keep throwing the ball. Don't let them have a chance to, with 15 seconds left in the game, go down the field and kick a field goal. Like that's that's the one thing you can point to and say after all of the weirdness that happened I mean, in the Bryce middle. Bryce Young was hit, hitting wide open guys, so it, it's tough for me to say don't throw the ball yeah. because you're throwing the ball very efficiently. 
And up until that stop, they, they were doing such a good job driving the ball downfield on them. And you want to kind of like not leave enough time because what we saw it in Tennessee, they didn't need a lot of time to drive the ball downfield on this defense, on this Alabama defense. And okay, so you mentioned the running joke with Nick Saban. You mentioned <laughs> that everyone freaks out after a single <laughs> loss. But the only reason I would say that you can maybe start freaking out a little bit, you lost the championship game to Georgia. Tennessee's here 6-0 and and beating you, and they have one of the best offenses in college football. Ole Miss, also undefeated, and has a former Nick Saban disciple and Wayne Kiffin as their head coach. You have all this dynamic shifting in the SEC, prospects going to different places than they used to when we're used to just seeing them funneled into Alabama and Clemson in years past, but now... NIL has changed this entire game. No denying it. As long as Nick Saban's the head coach of Alabama, they'll be consistently in the top 10. They'll be consistently in the top five. They'll always be hanging around. But now I think we've reached, finally reached the point where it's not going to be year after year after year. We could just write Alabama into the college football playoff because on any given year, a Tennessee now could jump in there. An Ole Miss can now jump in there. I think that we've hit that point in college football. Well, obviously, we thought Texas A&M was going to be in there, and they gave Alabama a run for their money last week. But we thought Texas A&M was going to be up there, and they still they still might in future years because on the recruiting level, Jimbo Fisher and those guys are still doing an amazing job. So the yeah. SEC is not the same SEC that Alabama just ran over for. I mean, look at this Tennessee game. Tennessee hadn't beaten them since 2007. That's the yeah. perfect example for Alabama's dominance in the SEC. But I haven't seen anyone coming out of this game who's saying Tennessee is a fundamentally better team than Alabama. Like people are saying Tennessee beat Alabama, but I haven't seen anybody who's like Tennessee is fundamentally better than Alabama. It's just they're they're close to each other and Tennessee happened to win a chaotic football no, game. No, but there's trickle down effects from this. There's trickle down effects from getting a victory like this on a big stage. Recruits watch this. Recruits say, oh, Tennessee is actually a program that I can go to and win. They aren't the same joke that they were a couple years ago when on Dan Patrick show, I remember talking about this one. They're talking about giving recruits money in McDonald's bags. That, that's yeah. what Tennessee was literally just a couple years ago. Now they're undefeated and beating Bama on a big stage. Why is it that the wrong UT wearing orange got to storm the field? I'm, I'm a little salty. I'm a little salty. Hell, even with that, <laughs> right? Alabama didn't even have an easy game against Texas, who's also going to the SEC here in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma, I mean, they're struggling now, but Oklahoma is a blue blood university. They're going to eventually get some recruits to go over there, and they're going to, on any given year, pose problems for Alabama. They're not getting Missouri, right? They're not getting Missouri to come over to the SEC. They're getting Oklahoma and Texas, two programs in, in the past, been contenders. So you add that to the SEC, you add, in general, just college football is changing. The dynamic of college football are changing. Alabama, I, I just don't think that there is a sure thing as they were. Kirby Smart's not going anywhere. Georgia's not going anywhere. There's just there, there have been there have been seasons like this before for Alabama where they lose early on in the season and they still go on to win a national championship. 2012, Johnny Manziel won a Heisman because of scheduling conflicts with Bama. And it's not just 2018. I mean, it's not just the loss. There's also like close games in here. Again, Texas A&M, close game. Texas, close game. They're showing cracks in the armor. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Alabama, in the broader context, there are three great teams in the SEC at this point. There's Alabama, Georgia, and Tennessee this year. And sorry, Ole Miss, I know you're having a great season. You're hosting Alabama, and that's going to be super fun. And you might win that game. Like, I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying Alabama will be probably like eight-point favorites on the road against Ole Miss because Alabama has that many four-and-a-half and five-star guys. But I, I need a larger sample size to recognize that the machine is falling for Alabama. And coming out of this game, I think Alabama is still as good of a team as Tennessee, which is crazy to say at the start of the year, but like no evidence from that game suggests like Bama's a worse team than Tennessee. I've you've heard me drop Tennessee's drive chart in here, but it's the most chaotic, magnificent thing I've seen. Tennessee went touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. The only punt of the game was muffed by Alabama and recovered by Tennessee. Touchdown, turnover on downs, Hail Mary that almost got completed to end the half. Second half, turnover on downs, touchdown, interception, turnover, a uh, touchdown, fumble recovered by Bama for touchdown, Tennessee touchdown that was an interception to seal the game, and then 15-second field goal drive. Like, it's just a chaotic game, and Tennessee wins those. We're just so used to Alabama winning the chaos games and them not being the team that has a 49-42 lead and ends up giving 10 points in in four minutes, which you could point to that and say, yeah, Alabama's secondary is cooked goose at this point, and that's okay. Like, they've had shortcomings before. This isn't the most talented Nick Saban roster by any stretch of the imagination, and they still will make the playoff if they run the table. That's just a big if because they have to beat Georgia again. Well, credit to Nick Saban and how he's been able to evolve as the head coach of Alabama. It's not easy for, as they say, an old dog to learn new tricks. But he did. He really did. Because you look at what Alabama was in years past, strong running game, best defense in college football. Well, now, at least the last few years, you go from Tua, Jalen Hurts, Mac Jones in that offense. And what you have now with Bryce Young, you know, they were getting the quarterbacks now to go to Alabama. And you look at what's going on in the NFL with those quarterbacks, too. They're actually doing a great job at the NFL level. That's something that Alabama wasn't able to do in years past. But will that go away as more places become realistic options for recruits to go to? We talked about Arch going to Texas. Well, the best example I can point to going to Texas A&M. The the best example I can point to of the changing landscape is Hendon Hooker. Hendon Hooker at Tennessee is not a highly recruited prospect by any stretch of the imagination, but because he had the transfer portal, when Virginia Tech fired Justin Fuente, he transfers to Tennessee. Josh Heupel puts the the structure and stability around him to build an offense that makes teams look stupid because a player had six catches and five touchdowns for Tennessee in that game. So like if you put the right situation for someone like a Hendon Hooker, he's going to get invited to the Heisman Trophy ceremony. I'm not going to say he's going to win it, but he looks like someone who's going to get invited to a Heisman Trophy ceremony because that offense has looked totally overwhelming in the second year of Josh Heupel. And Tennessee's more of a flash in the pan example. Like they're not the same thing as Alabama who can get any top quarterback prospect they want. It's just betting on the right one. And Bama's bet on the right one a couple times. We're we're also talking about this in the wake of a USC loss, but uh, going outside of the SEC a little bit too, you look around and you're like, well, USC might be back. UCLA starting to get a little bit of buzz. So you have some power coming out of, the well soon to be Big Ten. Obviously, we know that UCLA and USC <laughs> are changing over too. Clemson still hanging around. DJ Uangale, he wasn't as great as advertised, but they're still able to pull a top quarterback recruit and build together some defense as well. I, again, I said like Oklahoma, I think can have a rebound. Obviously, Texas, I'm hoping has a rebound. I got my loyalties <laughs> there. 
you look at the North, you look at Ohio State. Ohio State's just year after year with Ryan Day going to be able to put together an offense. And Michigan has finally hit its stride under Harbaugh. So there's just so many little powerhouses developing, or at least sub powerhouses, or competitive teams nonetheless. And then you add in college football playoff expansion. Alabama's stretch of dominance where they literally, what, what's, how many national titles does Saban have? In uh, that would be now? six and 12 years at Alabama and two national championship game losses as well. If you told me it started to turn more into the college basketball format where, yeah, Duke has like one national championship and so many years, but they're still considered one of the top programs in college basketball or uh, another example like North Carolina, Kentucky, Kentucky, probably the better example, you know, where, yes, they're still dominant. Yes, they're just still always at the top, but they're not pulling down championships year after year. If that's what Alabama turned into, it's nothing to hang your head in shame for, but it also is a more realistic outcome than the sheer dynasty that they were able to do in years past. I think that that's kind of what I'm expecting or projecting just because not only is it going to be hard to win national championships with all these schools finally good again, but it's going to be hard to get out of the SEC consistently year after year if Heupel continues to do what he's doing at Tennessee, if Smart continues to do what he's doing at Georgia, if Jimbo Fisher could have a rebound year at Texas A&M and Sark can do well at Texas. All these factors add up to being like, okay, well, maybe Alabama makes the national championship one every five years versus they make it every other year. I, I think that that's kind of like where I'm kind of like getting at with seeing this loss and you know, it is a little bit of an over, it could be an overreaction. This could be one of those takes that ages poorly, but I, I don't think it is. I, I think, you know, and Nick Saban's not going to be able to do this forever, right? He's getting old. <laughs> if he if, could, he would. Nick Saban only has one job. Nick Saban's hobby is recruiting. Like Nick Saban can do this for, I mean, at least, I mean, he's in his seventies now. So like, and we'll see what may, ends up happening. And there. maybe too, the, you know, this is coming from a younger generation perspective if I was like one of these recruits, dude, there would be a little bit of like, I don't want to just play for Alabama. Sometimes I want to beat Alabama. Alabama is a machine. So this is the interesting part about this is that they've developed a machine and it's not going to last forever. Like I understand the skepticism. I just haven't seen the evidence that suggests that the machine is falling apart. Like Alabama, even with almost losing to Texas, even with losing to Tennessee, the machine itself is not falling apart because Alabama is still in that group that will make it to the college football playoff. But of course, we're so used to them making eight championship games in 12 years that the standard is shifting because there, there we go. They're the most all I'm really getting at. I'm not saying that Nick Saban's falling off. This team will never make a national championship again. Alabama's done. They're cooked. They're gone. They're out of it. No, I'm just saying that I don't think we're going to see a dynasty like Alabama was continue into the future because there are just so many good teams in college football now. And I think that this is going to continue as NIL takes off more. We maybe even get to the point where we're talking about college athletes getting just paid directly. And that that's all going to be stuff that's going to be factored in. That's going to be baked into the cake um, that I don't think Alabama is just going to be able to compete at that same level. They'll still do well for themselves because they are Alabama at a certain point. Name recognition does take over, but USC has name recognition. Miami has name recognition. Texas has name recognition. Michigan has name recognition. Ohio State, all these programs, all these blue bloods are starting to put their hat back in the ring, you know? There, there's only space for one. 
the in the in the landscape of college football at the very top, there will only be space for one of those teams. And I know we we throw those names out like they're flashy. USC, Miami, Texas, all these teams trying to get back in the game. Only one of them is going to rise to the cream of the crop. And surprisingly, for the last five years, it was Clemson. <laughs> like Clemson, this team that is a flash in the pan moment type of team yeah, with uh, coaching. I mean, yeah, you just yeah, coaching and do. investing resources that they didn't in the two thousands. Like once they got good, they put the money where their mouth was and wanted to keep building it. it <laughs> Clemson's this a this anomaly example. I mean, but Notre all Dame's the teams that you're entering listening. a down period too, and they're going to have questions yeah. about like Freeman moving forward, but. You figure Notre Dame at one point is going to get back in there as well. These are all things, yeah. these sleeping giants too around the There's sport. One of them is going to get it. They're, all of these teams are competing for an incredibly thin space because we haven't really mentioned Georgia, who at this point is the best team in the SEC. I know they have their own questions at this point. Georgia is basically in the 2012 Alabama space right now. And I'm not saying Georgia is Alabama. I'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination. I'm saying Georgia last year had the most dominant defense in 20 years in college football and won a national championship with a mailman as their quarterback. This year, they are, if not the favorites to win the national championship, number two on that list. Georgia is on the path that Alabama was on, that Ohio State's been on for the last few years, where Alabama's like, Urban Meyer, you can get out of here and the machine's going to keep on rolling with Ryan Day. (laughs) And Georgia's in that same place where they are the team that, if you're aspiring to be the team that knocks Alabama down a peg, Clemson was that for six years. They beat Alabama twice in national championship games. And Georgia is that team now that has kind of replaced Clemson in that role. So all those other teams that are trying to build a program from scratch, they're trying to compete in an incredibly thin window to be a perennial playoff team. Like you can perennially make the New Year's Six Bowl games and be what Texas was when they won a Sugar Bowl or be what Oklahoma State is now. Like that space you can get into and as long as you have stability, you can compete there. You're fighting for an incredibly thin window when we're talking about what Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State and Clemson and Michigan and I guess the sixth team this year is Tennessee. But again, I don't expect Tennessee to like ride this into being Uh, a perennial playoff team. November 5th, we'll find out a lot about Tennessee they play that Georgia team you're talking about there's only six teams that can make the college football playoff it's Georgia Tennessee Alabama Ohio State Michigan Clemson and Ohio State's going to play Michigan in a de facto quarterfinal playoff game because winner will go to the playoff loser will get eliminated and then you have Georgia Tennessee the loser of that is going to not make the SEC championship which maybe the maybe they'll put Two, I mean, it, more would have to happen, but basically two SEC teams will get in the winner of Ohio State, Michigan. And as long as Clemson doesn't shit the bed, Clemson will also get a playoff spot. Well, regardless of what happens moving forward, Hendon Hooker, you are a hero nationwide. You are one of those <laughs> names that will be remembered in the same way that even Johnny football was remembered for beating Alabama and having a storming the field moment. A fantastic game. Might be game of the year that we just saw. It might be the game of the year just in general in sports that we just saw. Well, one now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Jordan Poole got paid. Andrew Wiggins got paid. Draymond Green. He got a fine. They didn't suspend Draymond Green for knocking out a teammate, which is a whole other 
ugly mess of a situation that's gone on for the Warriors this week. The extensions kind of ease the blow for anyone talking Bay Area basketball. Uh, what is your initial reaction to both Poole and Wiggins getting these deals? I was surprised it happened on the same day and also kind of thought both of them would happen because basically if if Poole didn't reach an extension on the day that he got it, he would have been a uh, restricted free agent. This is just the way that being an undrafted player works in the NBA. So he wouldn't have been able to negotiate an extension a- again until after the season ended. So Golden State pushed it right down to the wire with Poole, which interesting choice i would say if you were if you had your apprehensions about keeping him around they can obviously trade him later but just interesting apprehensions yield there. result deadlines yield results my friend yeah and then they wanted to lock down wiggins at the price that he was which by the way i was surprised wiggins only got 110 now like it's basically the same contract he's getting right now and i don't think he's going to be on the warriors for all five years of that contract but at the same time i was surprised that he didn't get more coming off of finals MVP I thought he would get not a max extension but at least 30 million a year and he only came out to like 27.5 so I think good deal on the value lines for the Warriors especially if the salary cap's going to go up in the next couple years did I miss something I thought Steph Curry was the finals MVP that's true he's not a finals MVP but he was the second best player on a team that had Steph Curry and won the championship in the playoffs I shouldn't have said finals MVP I should have said second best player on the Golden State Warriors who won the championship second best player on a championship most second best player on a championship team that the new trophy it it's made out of wood i mean some sturdy wood like second best player on a championship team can be kobe bryant and it can be chris middleton there's kind of a wide bar in between the two of those and andrew wiggins i guess is on the lowest end of that because of just how amazing steph curry was in that final series wiggins if i had to measure andrew wiggins impact and how he contained jason tatum i would say yeah that was pretty impactful on that entire series yeah I mean, only Golden, only Golden State can can put an Andrew Wiggins in that position. But yeah, I was interested by both of them getting extension. Draymond's not going to get an extension. That that one, we kind of already knew that, and we kind of knew that they were going to choose those two players over Draymond. Draymond already knew that because there's whispers that you know this is his last season, and he's angling to get to Los Angeles because of the connection to Clutch Agency. And might as well punch out a teammate on the way out. Even before he punched out Jordan Poole, we kind of knew that this was going to be it because Draymond was literally unplayable in games three and four of the finals last season. So I get that point of it. I think that the Golden State Warriors had to make these moves and they're kind of like in this pivotal transition phase where they're basically taking the money they gave to Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and now giving it to Andrew Wiggins and Jordan Poole, which doesn't guarantee that you're going to get back to the promised land like that is not necessarily the best guarantee that you're going to be great, but it's so hard to be great. The fact that the Warriors have been great for eight years with the same core of the team is, I think the only comp is the San Antonio Spurs of having the same core of your team and having that be great for eight consecutive seasons with a little break in between. So do you like this new core as the Warriors of the future? Do you like the idea of Poole, an older staff, and Wiggins being the guys that can carry the Warriors in this next phase. Because Clay Thompson, we kind of agree based off how we saw him in last year's finals. Seems like he's starting to get to the point where he's kind of done. And then Draymond, like you said, he's not going to be a Warrior next year. Do you think that this is the core that can continually keep them as championship contenders? No, they're going to need one more person so basically the warriors 
it's either Wiseman, it's Kaminga, uh, it's Moses Moody, maybe. They're just going to have to start playing those players and figure out what they have with those young guys. Because the way that they're going to sustain paying Steph Curry over $50 million a year, paying Jordan Poole $30 million a year, and paying Andrew Wiggins $27.2 million a year, while for the time being having Clay Thompson on the roster, I mean, I don't know how long Clay Thompson is going to still be a Golden State Warrior. He got a five-year extension, so he has two years left on his contract, and he's making $40 million and $43 million the next two seasons uh, to not be the same Clay Thompson of yesteryear, which is an impossible ask. Like Coming off those two injuries, it's an impossible ask for him. But I will say that Jordan Poole, Wiggins, and as long as you have Steph, you're going to be competitive for the next few years. It's what those younger players who are on rookie contracts for the next few years are going to look like. And if they had just taken LaMelo Ball over James Wiseman, I think our answers would be more concrete. But they're still in that position where they're going to need one of those lottery picks to turn into something. Even if it's just becoming Harrison Barnes or even it's if it's becoming just a, a good player instead of a great player, that's something that's going to help because... They already have the foundation of Steph, Clay, Jordan Poole, and Wiggins for the next at least two seasons. I will give you that obviously LaMelo has been awesome already in his NBA career. I think that the jury is still not out on Wiseman. He still has that potential. He still is a big guy. He can give what the Warriors really don't have, especially if we're talking about the post-Draymond Green era. They need some size. That, that will be something that is a needed position for them. So it's just going to come down to can their culture, can that locker room build Wiseman into that type of guy? Uh, again, you talk about Moody and Kaminga. You would love to see those. Now, th- they have some things that they're going to have that are different this year. Obviously, Gary Payton Jr. isn't there. So this team loses that perimeter defender that was pivotal in them winning a championship last year they are currently number four according to vegas in terms of best betting odds to win the championship this year uh right behind milwaukee boston and tied with the clippers they're going to be in the mix there's no doubt about it they'll be in the mix i question the decision to not suspend raymond a little bit I, i feel like it's not accountability sure a fine is fine it's it's fine (laughs) that you gave a fine but i I would think a suspension would be more appropriate given it got leaked out there and we all saw what it was it was straight up sucker punch the warriors will continue to be a contender regardless even if they just kept that core didn't change anything they will be at worst like number four in the western conference with just that core because i think steph i think i always appreciate about steph and will continue to appreciate is I think he's the type of player that can age perfectly. Just shooting is something that is so valuable. I don't think it's like something that you just kind of like turn off a switch and suddenly you're bad at. Like even Ray Allen in his last season was still a great shooter for the Miami Heat. I think Steph is going to be a type of player that will age consistently. The next thing is with you handing out these deals, you're hoping that there's something more to Wiggins. You're hoping that there's something more to pull. And that's what the Warriors are banking on. Like you said, can Poole ever become a valuable defender to them? Is he always going to be a liability for them defensively? If so, then he needs to become a consistent asset for them offensively. He can't have games where he just disappears. Up until that point where he hit that half-cart shot against Boston, he was pretty quiet. He was pretty contained. You're handing out a deal like this. If you're handing out an extension like this, you are telling Jordan Poole, you are going to be the not just a dude, 
you might be the dude for the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> Jordan Poole, you are the dude until we can find the dude better than you and then trade you for the dude that's better than you. But if that never comes, then you're the dude. <laughs> yeah, all the pressure's on you, Jordan Poole. This is what this extension does. And now Andrew Wiggins is not a guy that hasn't had pressure in his career. Obviously, you're talking about a former number one overall pick. Andrew Wiggins has dealt with pressure. He's dealt with adversity. He's dealt with Jimmy Butler, basically calling him a pussy, you know? So I, I think that Andrew Wiggins has shown that he can overcome in his career, redefine himself. And if he can just, now that he's gotten paid, now that he's got the steal, I just hope he doesn't get complacent, right? I hope that he keeps that same level of defensive integrity and doesn't go back to what he was in the years past. Because again, he, he shut down Jason Tatum. If he shuts down like a team's most valuable offensive scorer on a consistent basis, then by all means, he always will give this team a chance to win series, win pivotal games. You know that it, it's a tangible asset that the Warriors can replicate game, game in and game out as long as Wiggins continues to bring that that intensity. It's something that obviously you know Draymond's brought to this team, and they're gonna have to shift the culture to someone else. Like again, whether that's Wiseman, whether that's Wiggins. Someone's going to have to pick up the slack when they eventually do make the decision to move on past Draymond Green. And I know a bunch of stuff has changed in the time since, but going into the playoffs last year, the Warriors were the fourth largest favorites to win the championship. And then through all of the offseason changes, they are still the fourth best odds to win the championship. So it's kind of funny how that one played out. You can change the teams at the top a little bit. I know Milwaukee and Boston are still the two favorites, but I mean, the Warriors are kind of the same team, which is they're going to coast through the regular season and then their playoff their playoff run is going to be contingent on Steph Curry being Steph Curry. One of the greatest basketball players to ever play. Poke holes in the top four teams. I mean, Milwaukee, yeah, they had the best player in the world, but we've seen them come up short because of injuries and their lack of depth behind Giannis. Boston, I mean, hell, literally a head coach got suspended in the offseason. How is that going to affect the team? The Clippers, I mean, the Clippers, I mean, we assume that Kawhi is going to come back and everything's going to be all No one's watched them play for two seasons. Yeah, Yeah, so... You look at those three teams, and I've seen the Warriors play last season. I saw them win a championship just, what, three, four, five months ago? Whatever it was. I know that nothing's really significantly changed. I mentioned, again, it was like a Gary Payton, but I'm sure they'll find someone. I'm sure they'll find someone to come up from the G League and fill that role. It's just something that they've been able to do in building this machine that is the Golden State Warriors. Now these deals just signify... Well, we're planning on being the best team, one of the best teams in the league for the next four, five, 10, 20, 30, mm-hmm. 40, 50 years, as long as we could continue to get guys into our locker room and build that culture and build the Golden State Warriors as championship winning basketball, because that is our brand now. We are a legitimate dynasty. KD, no KD, Steph, <laughs> no Steph. Whatever it may well, be, we'll, well be able they do to need staff. They do well, need staff. Let's put that up. as all good organizations do. When the day should come, because it will come, we need to have a future beyond staff. Hopefully, Jordan pull staff from them because they need someone to be it. Who knows? Who knows? Is it too late to add an addition to my biggest NFL disappointments? Because the Carolina Panthers. All the levels of disappointment, every level for them. Actually, you know, I'll give their defense pass, but it's just been ugly, man. We, we talked about it. Is Baker Mayfield the worst starting quarterback in the league? Well, he's not probably going to be a starter much longer. Apparently, he has an ankle injury. Apparently, the fire sales begun. Reports of an inquiry between the Buffalo Bills for Christian McCaffrey. Uh, what were your thoughts when you first heard the Matt Rule was released this early in the season? I don't usually care this much 
but I'm going to say this here. I have never been more right about anything than I have been the last three seasons about the Carolina Panthers. Every step along the way, I have been absolutely correct about the Carolina Panthers. This began in 2019 when I first started doing the Take It Easy podcast available on Believe and wherever you get podcasts. When I said, Carolina, you're in a perfect position to tear it down. McCaffrey's value will never be higher and it's the running back position. You don't plan to compete for the next three seasons. So what good does it do you to extend him when you know he has about three years of good football left? They gave McCaffrey an extension. They ended up hiring Matt Rule, which at the time, again, not a terrible hire. And then from there, they go 5-11. and 11, They go 5-11. and 11. They saved $20 million by getting rid of Cam Newton and then gave that $20 million to Teddy Bridgewater. They then paid the Broncos $13 million to take Teddy Bridgewater, then traded a second round pick for Sam Darnold, where they could have had Justin Fields or Micah Parsons at pick nine in that draft. JC Horn is really good, according to the pro football focus guys. So like that's going to look better as time goes on, but they could have had Justin Fields and Micah Parsons. Instead, they gave up a second round pick for Sam Darnold. They fired Joe Brady out of nowhere last year and replaced him with goddamn Ben McAdoo. And Carolina went five and 11 for a third consecutive season. I told you in July when they spent four months posturing with Baker Mayfield, he's an upgrade over Sam Darnold and it will not change their win-loss record by a single game. And lo and behold, I have been goddamn right about everything about the Carolina Panthers. You weren't exactly right. Again, you said Baker Mayfield would be an improvement over Sam Darnold. That was very incorrect. <laughs> as we've seen I, in the I, early season results. Uh, sure. To, to each their own in terms of that. Uh, Sam Darnold's really bad at football also, but no, hey, he PJ is. Walker time. I, I don't disagree with Sam Darnold is bad at football. I just think that Baker has been extremely bad at football. When you look at that game against the Niners, which by the way, go Niners, the double clutch interception just looks like he's playing scared out there. I don't know if that had to do with the ankle injury. I don't know if it's a little bit of shell shock from last year. Either way, Baker Mayfield is just not the same guy he was his rookie year. He wasn't the same guy that he was even two years ago in 2020. He's just shot as a quarterback at this point. And the next question for Baker is, what is the next phase of his career? Is it going to be as a backup? Yeah. Uh, you would assume so. But at the same time, I kind of feel like Baker Mayfield has that stain that a lot of other guys of his ilk have, like a Cam Newton. You know, the kind of like flashy, showy, former starter, former stud. I feel like it's not as going to be as simple as him just getting a job as next year. There's going to be having some concessions made as far as his next destination of where he ends up going. As far as this fire sale, this game proposed for Carolina, Christian McCaffrey, Brian Burns, DJ Moore, teams are inquiring about. So these are three big names. And this is what I meant when I first credited the Carolina Panthers. I thought that they were going to make a turnaround this year. I still thought that there was star caliber names on this team, names that other teams will find desirable. And sure enough, it's clear based off the early reports of teams inquiring that these names do have value for them. Okay, Christian McCaffrey, what do you think that that would net you? What would you pay for Christian McCaffrey if you're a GM? Uh, it depends on the team. So if you're a team that's kind of like long centric, like say the New York Jets, if the New York Jets are making a trade, they don't need to put a premium on the running back position because they would be better served through their rebuild investing in that young draft capital. The rumors if you're. That's the next team I was going to go to. If you're Buffalo, overpay for Christian McCaffrey. Buffalo, that could be the difference between Buffalo being very, very, very good 
and better than Kansas City. And that the, you cannot put a price on that one of the all-in move of going to upgrade at the running back position that I still can't comprehend how terrible it's been. Buffalo's just got to do the analysis on what McCaffrey's worth in the market, which I got to be honest, I do not know what Christian McCaffrey would command at this point on the open market. I couldn't even throw a guess at you as to what Christian McCaffrey would be worth. Is he a first round pick? Is it multiple day two picks? Is it a player in a pick? I have no idea what you could get for Christian McCaffrey at this point. And when it comes to DJ Moore and when it comes to Burns and when it comes to Chin, and it's going to come down to those players also on the team, I will say the same thing to them that I said to Seattle this offseason. You don't have to trade anybody. You also should take offers on everyone. You, You should evaluate exactly what you value those players at. If someone meets the price tag, don't hesitate to pull the trigger. You should make everyone available, but you don't have to trade anybody. You don't have to like get 70 cents on the dollar because you want to tear this thing all the way to the ground. Like some of those players on the team are nice to haves. Like Shaq Thompson, who just signed a giant extension, is a nice to have type of guy. The only must moves are the ones that preserve salary cap space and possibly lead to compensatory picks. Everything else, only trade them if a team meets your price tag. As far as DJ Moore, I think that the Carolina Panthers should move on, mostly because I think that wide receiver is a replaceable position in the NFL. And I feel if you could get a second or third round pick from DJ Moore, who I still think is a second or third round talent, even at current value, I think that that's a move that Panthers should explore. As far as Brian Burns goes, he's a bit of an X factor to me because it's not easy to find star pass rushers in the NFL. You don't Sal go on Brian Burns. I think that you can get a good pick off of him. If we look at someone like a Frank Clark or a D4, that was about a high second round pick a couple years ago. So I would say Brian Burns should at least equal that, if not a lower end first round pick. Christian McCaffrey, like you said, I think that that's the weirder one just because of how the NFL evaluates the running back position now. You wouldn't draft many running backs in the first round unless you're David Gettleman. So I don't know how many other <laughs> NFL GMs are going to trade a first round pick for a running back like Christian McCaffrey, unless you just don't look at him as a running back. That's also the thing about Christian McCaffrey, right? Because we value how much, much of a difference maker he is in the receiving game. If you value him more as a slot wide receiver, that maybe changes what you perceive Christian McCaffrey as a team like Buffalo who doesn't really have a running game. I don't know how they would really value a Christian McCaffrey because he is obviously an improvement over what they currently have in the backfield. But if they intend to use him more as a Cole Beasley type or Cole Beasley replacement and that slot, then I don't know if he's necessarily the same value. You know, a team he'd be really valued for, the San Francisco 49ers. After all, we do love to acquire running backs with injury histories, and he would be fantastic (laughs) in those three games he suited up as a Kyle Shanahan running back. I think that they should explore those three players. You know, J.C. Horn, someone I think is going to be part of your future. You want to keep him around. Lockdown cornerback, one of the best in the game at that position already, just in his second year. Uh, I think J.C. Horn's a good building block. I, I think they have good quality defensive pieces, but they'll have to ask themselves, what is our goals for the rest of the season? Because you mentioned, okay, Baker, he might go down a couple weeks with this ankle injury. Okay, P.J. Walker slide in, Sam Darnold's coming back from IR. I guess you want to get some evaluations of all three of those guys. You know that they're no longer. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to. I will say no, none of those three quarterbacks are going to be on the team next year. I, I will put that out there. None of put this down in the in our list. None of these three quarterbacks, Baker, Sam Darnold or PJ Walker will be on the team next year. And uh, well, do for- you want to go all in on this coming year to go after a CJ Stroud or a Bryce Young? Or do you maybe even want to punt a year for like a Caleb Williams the next year? Because you can set yourself up to be really bad in two years. I will say it, I think it's tough just because 
the Panthers came into this year trying to compete. Yes, for sure. This was the make or break season, of course. And my, my evaluation on this has changed. Uh, the, the Lions and the Giants have made me think about this, where it's like they haven't liked anybody in the last couple of years drafts. And so they've gone with, you know, the Giants don't see Daniel Jones being on the team beyond this year. But because they they were just like, eh, could do worse. They just kind of slid him in at, for a season they think and probably still will be a, a rebuilding year. And I keep saying they're shooting for Will Levis. Lions, same situation. They don't view Goff as the long-term option, but they it's a fine holdover for years. And uh, if you don't like the options, it's just the reason I say the Baker, Darnold, and Walker thing is that it'll be very easy to move off of all three of them at the end of this season. And so the new coach will come in and, and do what they want. And, and on the McCaffrey front, I just realized something as you were mentioning the 49ers, which is if you're a team like Buffalo, Kansas City, the Rams, and the 49ers and you trade for Christian McCaffrey, it's very easy to explain why. If you're another team that's offering premium capital for McCaffrey, you're going to have to explain to me why you're doing it. So like the Jets, why would you trade for Christian McCaffrey? How does this fit into the grand scheme that you're trying to run? If you're a team like the, I don't think the Raiders would, but I'm just throwing a team out there that I'm thinking about. Like if you're not a team where it's very clear why you're making this trade and how it fits into your offense, maybe second guess before you give up premium capital for McCaffrey, which I know sucks because that means McCaffrey is going to go to one of the four best teams in the league. Because when you're Buffalo and Kansas City, of course you can make room for Christian McCaffrey on your team. F them picks, right? (laughs) <laughs> Rams should Rams totally should their running game. It has been atrocious the last two years. They should absolutely get McCaffrey if they can or Derrick Henry. One of the two. He if kind of looks him. like Cooper Cup. So I think that might work for Matthew Stafford. Yeah. Yeah. They got all the white receivers out there. Skronik there. Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup. They're, they'll be fine. Just sliding McCaffrey in. I will also Seems say like Matthew to the- Stafford's loving those check down plays a lot more these days. The one part I will also bring up about Baker Mayfield, and you mentioned this earlier, is Baker Mayfield's that guy who is fueled by the haters. He is fueled by, I have a gigantic boulder on my shoulder and I'm going to prove someone wrong. I was cut at Texas Tech after walking on and stealing the starting job. I was the Heisman Trophy winner going to Cleveland, guy who was constantly talked about being replaced. Like chip on your shoulder guys usually are the ones who flame out faster because what happens when the haters are proven correct? Like what happens when all the evaluation comes true and you have to evolve and adapt your identity? It's difficult to do, especially when you've made it this far by being the guy who's fueled by the hatred and using it to your advantage. Now he has to reinvent his personality a little bit. That's the personality type that famously flames out of the NFL. I don't want to like throw Johnny Manziel accusations onto him just because of all that's encompassed with Johnny Manziel and fame and alcoholism and all sorts of stuff. But Baker Mayfield follows a similar trend of the people who flame out spectacularly are the people who then have to change their identity as they no longer become an NFL starting quarterback do you think the only place he really fits is a team that has a superstar quarterback already I think it depends on Baker Mayfield the person and I don't know Baker Mayfield the person I think as it's currently constructed now a situation where he's a very clear backup would be beneficial because it gives him the time to kind of process what the next five to ten years of his career going to look like because he could be Gardner Minshew for a decade he could be like Geno Smith for a decade like if he so Mm. chooses he could be a backup quarterback and a very good backup quarterback for many many years give me the best landing spot you can think of for Baker 
best landing spot in the league. Well, I think at this stage of his career, it would be a place that has a, a quarterback who might get replaced. So like, I guess like maybe Minnesota or something like, like a place where he could do what I call bridge watering, which is like he could take over for the starting job if the guy plays poorly or if he gets hurt, like what Tannehill did with Mariota. I, I just don't like that from his personality type. And We'll see, like you mentioned, he can evolve. People change. People change all the time. They get better. They improve. They grow. He's coming off an offseason in which, again, he became a sympathetic character in the public eye because of everything going on with Cleveland. What is that uh, coming off poor play? Obvious poor play. Dumbfounding how bad he's played this year, given that his numbers are comparable to most NFL rookies. He just flew below Justin Fields. Who knows knows how much leash we're going to continue to give Justin Fields, too. I think the only places that make sense, that, I mean, come on, like how how long is like Chad Henney going to keep going along in Kansas City, right? Or yeah. Buffalo's always probably looking for a backup quarterback. Uh, Justin Herbert, Chase Daniel has been in the league forever. I'm sure that he could use conceivably a backup quarterback. I doubt the Packers are really selling themselves high on Jordan Love anymore these days. And you <laughs> never know, you have a veteran quarterback who could retire any day. So maybe there's that in terms of rebuilding your character and trying to just find a place where you could kind of fly under the radar Tampa I would say no just because I think Brady could conceivably be in his last year so that would instantly make Mayfield the starter next year those are just some of the places that kind of like instantly come to mind as far as like where Baker could go next we'll see but I mean he just needs to play better I mean bottom line end of story like it doesn't really matter his character what he says in a press conference he just needs to show it on the field at least at some point this season, I'm sure he's going to get another opportunity to go out there. I, I don't think PJ Walker's going to light it up the rest of the season and just steal the job. No, I don't think no. Sam Darnold's going to light it up the rest of the season and just steal the job. So Baker's going to have his opportunity. We'll see if he can improve. These guys are on fire. Let's hear more. Second quarter starts now. The Rams, you know, week five was not good for them. It showed that. They got some obvious problems with this team. And you look at Matthew Stafford's stat line through five weeks, five touchdowns, seven interceptions, uh, one of the league leaders in interceptions. And he, he just has a problem right now that he's just locking in on one guy. And if you're a Cooper Rush fantasy owner, you love it. But not, not a lot of people who enjoy watching the Rams are loving what they're seeing from this team. Why do you think this offense is so bad, Kyle? Uh, cause literally week one. So I will, I will tell you this. I was driving up from San Diego to uh, Sacramento for the bills Rams game. And when I got back, I started watching the game and my first instinct, and I made a whole podcast after the fact was, Oh my God, Matthew Stafford looks so broken and they just, they can't open up the playbook because he just physically can't do the things that he was doing even last year. And from that point, I, I looked at that and said, Stafford, you're not ready to play like he had elbow surgery coming in recently. He was coming off the shoulder injury that Troy Aikman spilled the beans on during the NFC championship game last year. Matthew Stafford is physically not correct. And then you add in the fact that he had a rib injury against the Cowboys this week. He's been dealing with a calf problem like the dude is just so injured. And I know it's football, so we don't give that pass. That's the thing. Yeah. Matthew Stafford's a crazy person. And because there's no one thing you can point to the physical ailments that is like, okay, this is something that might possibly keep him out. It's just, it's the constant pain and toil of football. And Matthew Stafford's just experienced it earlier than everyone else. I mean, Justin Herbert's still playing with like torn rib cartilage and he's not showing up on the injury report. Matthew Stafford 
well, has been would, so NFL broken. Would, and, and, the NFL, I mean, would still have to. I believe there's penalties for not showing up someone oh, on the injury report. No, yeah, you're, no, you're correct in terms of like he doesn't have a specific one injury. He's just physically like a lesser version of himself. And most football players are. I mean, Matthew Stafford won a Super Bowl with a torn shoulder last year. So like, obviously, there the excuse only goes so far. It's just the, it's not the only problem with the Rams. It's just the most glaring problem is that. They're paying Stafford a lot of money to overcompensate for the fact that they don't like paying Stafford means you don't get to have Robert Woods. You don't get to have Todd Gurley. You don't get to spend big money at those spots and it hasn't worked out. But should he show up on the injury report for the part of his brain that controls decision making? Because it's clear that there's some decision making issues as well whenever you're watching his game, because these interceptions are just really bad interceptions. They're literally like targeting the defenders on the other team. They're interceptions that if it was Jameis Winston would be like, of course, the classic Jameis Winston type interceptions because they're right right too, guys. They're they're bad ones. If you are suffering through these elbow injuries, these shoulder injuries, then why are you still attempting deep balls like he is? Because these (laughs) deep balls just kind of like look like just balloons waiting to get plucked from the air. Is that play calling? Is that Matthew Stafford? Where's the disconnect? Because clearly Sean McVay or one one of these guys has to be the bigger man, the bigger voice in the room and say, okay, the offense is clearly a little stilted, clearly a little stale right now. We need to change up our philosophy. Why aren't we getting a guy like Allen Robinson involved? You know, Allen Robinson, maybe he's not quite the receiver he was that we thought he was when he was obviously when, when he was in Jacksonville or the early part of his career with the Bears. But in week one, he was averaging three yards of separation. So clearly the ability is still there. Why aren't we getting him involved? Why aren't we just dialing up plays for him? Why is this such a uncreative offense now? I've seen so I've seen Sean McVay adapt and change his offense a couple times over the last three to four years. And and this year leads me to believe that the problem is personnel more than it is the the person the, the scheming around the personnel itself and it's frustrating when Allen Robinson doesn't get receptions or targets because of you know the fact that he's a big time free agent guy a fantasy owner we've seen him do it with lesser quarterbacks in worse situations um i think it's personnel and i think the reason it's personnel from the very beginning is Matthew Stafford is injured and the offensive line is not the same offensive line that it's been the past few years. And that combination of problems leads to Matthew Stafford's deep balls getting intercepted more often. Cause like dumb Matthew Stafford interceptions have been a thing his entire career. Like it's the reason Matthew Stafford is not a seven time pro bowler and an actual hall of famer is that yeah, Matthew Stafford makes dumb interceptions all the time. And it's usually they go for pick sixes. That's been the thing yeah. since he was in Detroit. He's one Jakowski tart drop away from none of the praise that we're giving on him this year going in yeah and in fact, Matthew Stafford Matthew Stafford's been that dude forever the problem this year is that he's not putting up any yards because he's basically like game managing because that's all he can physically do I, I know that they don't really have a good pivot on the Rams and I know that going back to the offseason the Rams were one of those teams that was kind of game rumored in the Jeremy Garoppolo sweepstakes if he got cut are you saying that Sean McVay's undying love for John Walford will not continue into the regular season? <laughs> because at a certain point, like we're having the same conversation with Matt Ryan and we're having the same conversation with Russell Wilson, you know, like at, at what point are you hurting your team? 
Well, so this is the, this is the interesting thing. Like he had surgery on the elbow this off season and it just didn't recover in enough of a time period because he was squeezing a six month recovery into like three months coming off the surgery. And so because he doesn't have to have another procedure, theoretically, that's why the diminished play has been out there. And I thought coming off of week one, they should have just sat down Stafford and given the elbow time to recover and said that was the reason he was out, even if it was a combination of the shoulder and the elbow and the calf. They should have sat him down and gave him the proper recovery time. But that's not how football culture works, right? Like Matthew Stafford sped up his recovery so that he would be able to play. All the incentives are there for him to play because the Rams might not be able to survive missing eight games of Matthew Stafford. So I I think it's just a matter of protecting the long-term health. And and like you were bringing up with them going to the top of the draft, I don't think it's that egregious for the Rams. They're better than the Giants. but Not that they could because they don't even even in the draft. No, they're they're better than the Giants. So like it's not like end of the world DEFCON nine, but like they're ranked eighteenth in the league in defensive DVOA, despite the fact they have Jalen Ramsey and Aaron Donald, who are the two best players at their position. So I mean, unless Donald and Ramsey are not having good seasons and I'm just not seeing that because I'm not the smartest football trained eye in the world. Like something is clearly coming up short on that defense as well. And the offensive line is a much lesser product. And yeah, the, you know, the Rams are like a fringe playoff team this season. And if Matthew Stafford doesn't stay healthy, I mean, fortunately for them, there's only like five good teams in the NFC. So they yeah. might like sneak into the playoffs, but the idea of saying the Rams are sneaking into the playoffs is, is a little bit crazy. You also have to factor in their last two opponents. Maybe it's a little bit of that. They're clearly playing the two of the better defenses in the league when you consider the Niners and Cowboys. I think the answer, the obvious fix is you have to start getting Allen Robinson by hook or by crook involved in this offense because you just can't be as one dimensional as they are because teams are starting. You go back to two weeks ago in the Monday night game. Telano Hulafanga knew where the ball was going. That is why he waited on that pick six to just jump in front of Cooper Cup and take it back to the house. You just need to make yourself different. I don't know if that's targeting the tight end more. That was one adjustment that Sean McVay made a couple of years ago that kind of helped the Rams offense kind of find some steam. Whatever they're doing, it just isn't it. I mean, you're talking about all those options that they have to try and get people involved, whether it's Robinson or Higby or Van Jefferson. I still think it's personnel. I think the Rams problem is personnel more than it is the schemes themselves. And Maybe they want to try and F them picks and, and go all in again. But I I think there's just there's a lot of issues on the team. Issues that existed last year that I think were masqueraded by the fact that they had Von Miller. They had a healthy Matthew Stafford. They had Whitworth. They had a good offensive line. This is the this is the ramifications, pun intended, of going all in <laughs> for, for all of those seasons. And and now one or two injuries ends up like being the the Jenga block that makes the tower crumble. Third quarter is beginning now. Tiger Hero signed a four-year, $130 million contract with the Miami Heat last season. Very good season for him. You know, he was one of the best six men in the league. Uh, consistent scoring off the bench for the Miami Heat, even though he basically played a majority of their minutes. That's exactly what this team kind of needs. Because when you kind of like look at the construction of the Heat, they do need... Uh, guys that could come off and score like Tyler Hero has been able to do, and certainly guys that have been able to do it from range. That was kind of their key to victory last year. Analyzing their offseason a little bit more, though, Kyle, what do you think of this Miami Heat team? Do you think they're still contenders in the Eastern Conference heading into the 2022-2023 season? 
Yeah, Miami's in this really interesting place where obviously they were the one seed last year. They were within one game of the finals and uh, you know, they almost got there. Yeah, one shot, basically. <laughs> See, I say one game like that because there was no they had no business winning that game seven. Boston just threw up on themselves in the last like four minutes of that game. And, and that would have been the storyline otherwise. But you're right. Yeah, they came within one shot of the NBA finals where if they had made the NBA finals, I attest they would have been the worst team in the history of modern basketball to make the NBA finals, at least let's say in my lifetime the worst team to make the finals. They would have been swept out immediately by the Warriors. There was that Nets team in the early 2000s that made it. See, technically my lifetime, I was like one years old or two years old at that point. So technically that squeezes in, but let's, let's say like the last 15 years, it would have been like the worst team to make the The NBA finals. The LeBron James led Cleveland Cavaliers that first run. I guess that's the cutoff point, right? That's that's like Miami would have been cut off. Okay. Miami would have been swept out immediately by the the Warriors. And if they had won one game, it would have been because the Warriors like shot two for 30 from three. So what's interesting is that they're in this like top two or three space, but they didn't change the foundation of their roster very much. So I guess what they're betting on is the rest of the teams aren't getting better as well because Miami obviously subtracts PJ Tucker from the team. There's not really a player you point to where you say their development is going to be this great improvement for them. It's Jimmy Butler. It's Bam Adebayo. It's Tyler Hero. And uh, I, all of them are, I, while Tyler Hero is not a fully formed player, they're betting on similar levels of production. I would also say one of their other big extensions or not big extensions, but a big move for them. Victor Oladipo, they brought him back on a two-year deal. You're hoping that he continues to put that injury behind him in his past. He hasn't looked, obviously, like quite the same player pre-injury. I know in that Boston series in particular, anytime Oladipo came off the bench, he was consistent scoring threat for them, caused a lot of problems. He still has some athleticism, but you are right that they are a flaw team. It's weird that they were the number one seed last year when you consider that they were middle of the pack in scoring. They're middle of the pack in rebounding. Actually, they were not even middle of the pack in rebounding. They were one of the worst teams in the league in terms of rebounding. Their biggest strengths were they were the best three-point shooting team in the league. Didn't take a lot of attempts, but they were the best three-point shooting team in the league, and they forced a lot of turnovers. And I think this kind of plays into, as cliche as it is, to say heat culture. Because what heat culture really is to me is it's that kind of scrappy level of defense, that hustle plays. Um, and you look at their team leader, Jimmy Butler, that kind of exemplifies throughout their roster because on defense, there's no denying that they are a tenacious defense. They get in guys in the building too that are undrafted or looked lowly upon like, you know, a Struess or something and turn them into players that are key parts of their rotation. Coming into this year, you look around the Eastern Conference though and you ask yourselves, where do they kind of like slot in? Okay, so you have... The Celtics, that they came within, again, a shot of beating. Uh, the Celtics added Brogdon this year. Uh, Gallinari got hurt before the season, and then we obviously know what's going on with Ime Adoka. The Bucks just kind of stayed pat. They didn't really make any notable moves. Their biggest move is this postseason. They'll have Chris Middleton, assumedly, in their yeah. lineup. They'll and get healthy. The Bucks will get healthy, at least. You think. You would say, but it's always possible, too, that they suffer injuries because they've kind of had a little bit of that. It just poor luck that Chris Milton got hurt when he did. The Hawks got better. The 76ers with uh, Harden coming in in better shape. You would think that they kind of got better if they can get a better version of James Harden because the last couple seasons, the version of James Harden we saw wasn't 
what we were expecting. They uh, the did Nets, also take PJ Tucker from the Miami Heat they, this offseason. They did do that. So addition by subtraction, attra- subtracting from your other opponent's roster and adding to yours. Uh, so respect that strategy. The Brooklyn Nets, they're the biggest question mark of the Eastern Conference, right? Because last year, told you going in, told you a dozen times going in, they were not better than the Boston Celtics. And sure enough, they get swept out. They're the only team last postseason to get swept out. But they did get an addition in the sense that, assumingly, Ben Simmons is going to be back on their team. What version of Ben Simmons are they getting? Now, you look at all those, and those are going to be really what the Heat are going to be kind of competing with, is culture, is the three-point shooting, is the defense just going to be enough to keep them in that mix, to keep them viable amongst that group? I would say they're still within that top five. I just I don't see enough to like pull them out of that top five. I think that Jimmy Butler, he's streaky. But when he's on his streak, he's one of the best players in the NBA. There's no doubt about it to me. Uh, Tyler Hero, you you mentioned you don't think he's a fully formed player. The player that we saw last year, if that player maintains, that's still a very good player that they have on their roster. And then you're just really hoping that you could get any kind of rebound performance from Kyle Lowry because Kyle Lowry in the postseason was just non-existent for them and starting to look like a bad contract. If Kyle Lowry can fix that, hell, talk about guys that need to get back into the gym, right? Do some work. Kyle Lowry, if he could fix that and come into camp in better shape, I think that that would be a huge addition for this Miami Heat team. Yeah, Miami's in that interesting place where they kind of have two untradeable contracts being Kyle Lowry and Duncan Robinson. So obviously they're they're kind of like fighting from behind in that sense because those contracts are well, difficult with Duncan, to Duncan, you know, he just needs to be more consistent. That That's the thing. Uh, he's not a helpful player on defense, but if he could just become a more consistent three-point shooter because he kind of lost his shot towards the tail end of the last season. And that was one of the big things that kind of made him expendable. So this is the interesting thing about heat culture. I think the Miami heat and the, the old time San Antonio Spurs and also the warriors now, but you know, we need a larger sample size there. What's interesting is that they can find a dozen Duncan Robinsons and that's the great competitive advantage that they have. But when the playoffs rolled around last year, Gabe Vincent was starting in place of, uh, of Duncan Robinson and Max Struess was sliding in for uh, Kyle Lowry. And those guys were making a combined, I believe $3 million total last year. Um, this year, Caleb Martin is going to be replacing PJ Tucker. They didn't really add any piece for money. They just slid in Caleb Martin to the starting lineups. So, like, they can find those guys. The problem for them where they get in trouble is when they get a little high on their own supply and they sign James Johnson to an extension. They sign Hassan Whiteside. They sign Dion Waiters. They sign Duncan Robinson. And all of a sudden the production dips because Max Struess is basically giving them what Duncan Robinson used to be. Because in Duncan Robinson's first three seasons, I think he made a combined total like $5 million. And then he got $80 million on a contract that probably should have been another team paying for Duncan Robinson because Miami doesn't need him at $16 million. I'll also point out the thing about Oladipo. Shout out to uh, Amin El Hassan, who does Sirius XM radio, and he's on the Levitard, who pointed out Victor Oladipo, according to his words, was unplayable in the playoffs last year because, yes, he can score points. He is an abomination of a defensive player at this point in his career. And the the offensive production you're getting, it's very ball heavy. That's not how the Miami Heat want to run their offense. It defeats the whole purpose of having him on the floor in the first place. So well, I will that's why he's that coming off the bench. Depot. You know, they're they're not going to be rolling Old Depot out, even if he does come out in full strength in their starting lineup. And they shouldn't. Like Lepidard mm-hmm. saying, he is bad for them defensively. But if you just get some quick spark off the bench, that's what Old Depot excels at doing for them. 
Yeah, the the thing is, once the rotation gets smaller, they would actually prefer to play Gabe Vincent instead of him, which, of course, we think of Oladipo as this former all-star number two pick in the draft. Gabe Vincent actually provides them more of what they're looking for. And uh, the other part that I think is a big question mark coming into the year is Bam Adebayo kind of disappears every now and again offensively. Uh, He has games where it's not that he's not effective on offense. He's just not shooting at all. He's not taking shots. He's not using big man moves. And and that's obviously something that we'll have to wait till the playoffs to solve. But it's just an interesting point. And problems aren't going away is that Adebayo, like relative to other NBA centers, problems aren't going away is that he's undersized. And that's why that they were one of the worst uh, rebounding teams in the league. You go into the Celtics series. Again, the Celtics, like you said, almost threw up on themselves and gave that series away. But in the games that they were running at full strength and blowing out the heat, it was because they were able to exploit that matchup with Robert Williams and other pieces on their team like Al Horford or Grant Williams, you know, other big, bigger guys in the paint that were able to match up really well with Adebayo. Like you said, make it impossible for him to want to take shots. So those are just issues that I don't know if they can really fix. Autobio just is what he is, and he's just going to give you what he gives you. And I, I think that he's a very good player, but you're right. Consistency could probably be the biggest strength of improvement for Autobio as the Heat try and compete for the NBA title. All right, guys. And now starts the final quarter. Buckle up. Buckle up. This is the Slump Buster Podcast. Was the Lakers thing even remotely close? Yeah. To my knowledge, I thought it was a done deal. So I was like, I'm going to get away for a couple couple days, take my mind off it. And by the time I come home, be free agency, hey, signing with the Lakers. DeMar DeRozan was on Old Man in the Three this past week. And in that interview, he confirmed something that we kind of knew, but weren't for sure about, that he was basically a Los Angeles Laker without just signing the contract. It was a done deal. His agent had already gone and everything. They were planning on getting the move on the way. And then the Russell Westbrook trade happened. And DeMar, if you listen to the interview, you could tell that the man was definitely hurt by this. Emotional damage! This was his homecoming. This is his opportunity to go play for the team that he admired growing up. And it didn't happen because the Lakers decided they wanted another star. Russell Westbrook was the star. DeMar was the guy that used to be a star or a fringe star. And then San Antonio happened and his star caliber dropped, tanked, gone. And then last season happened. We got to play the results a little bit. And DeMar, although he didn't finish that great through the early part of the season, we know how well DeMar played. He was playing at an MVP caliber level. I think this one is just another example of the Lakers front office making a huge misstep. And it sucks for them, too, that it gets to play out in the public because DeMar put it on one of the most famous basketball sports podcasts out there with J.J. Riddick. Yeah, that is uh, that's something that we always kind of knew existed. But of course, because the news was reported that Buddy Heald was going to the Lakers in exchange for Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Kyle Kuzma. Because that deal was reported, that was the story that ended up taking precedent. Uh, I'll never forget that. I was in an airport. I was in the line for TSA, and it was announced that Buddy Heald was going to the Lakers. And then 40 minutes later, Russell Westbrook was going to the Lakers for the same package, plus like Montrezl Harrell in a first-round pick going to 
Washington. I'll never forget how stupid that was. But what was kind of lost in that was that, yeah, the Lakers had had talks with DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan was technically a free agent. The Lakers would have had to do a sign-in trade, which would have broke Greg Popovich's heart. But, you know, he didn't have much of a choice when it came to DeRozan leaving. It was either spike the Lakers and get nothing or get Kyle Kuzma in return. And I, I think they would have gone for it. And media day, Greg confirmed, Coach Pop confirmed that he's in it just for the paycheck at this point. So it's fine. I think he could have let it go. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that they would have facilitated a trade and got uh, something in between. They did end up facilitating a trade with Chicago and they got like, if you follow the winding path of trade, they basically got like a first round pick for DeMar DeRozan because they like got Thaddeus Young and traded Thaddeus Young for, for anyways. But that it would have been something totally plausible and totally could have happened. The Lakers just messed up real bad. If the Lakers did end up with DeMar, how do you think that would have changed their 2021-2022 season? <laughs> well, in fairness, they wouldn't have like they wouldn't have gone from missing the playoffs to like winning the championship. DeMar DeRozan's a great player. He's not that great of a player because the Lakers had so many injuries, but the Lakers would have been the Bulls last year. <laughs> they would have been in the playoffs, win one playoff game, and then get bounced. I mean, Anthony Davis wouldn't have played the whole playoffs, but at least you have a semi-healthy LeBron and DeMar DeRozan. They wouldn't have just called it quits at the end of the season. I think it's more notable given how bad Russell Westbrook played last season. The guy led the league in turnovers. The guy was yeah, but- his normal 30% three-point shooting self. I think that when you consider that and you just put that against the raw numbers that DeMar DeRozan was putting up last year, the guy averaged 27.9, basically 28 points per game, was over 50% from the field, 35% three-point shooter, 87% free throw shooter. You just add those statistics. And I know that players aren't chess pieces. You could just move around at will. But putting those numbers, if I could just put those numbers on last year's version of the Lakers. Like you said, I don't know if they're a championship team. There's a lot of things that have to break right from an injury standpoint for the Lakers to be a championship team again. But man, I'd be looking at this team at least as a second round playoff team. Look about the teams that we're in. I mean, they were better than last year's version of the Nikola Jokic led Denver Nuggets with no stars around him. If you had DeMar and LeBron, at least, I think that those are two guys that you just go into battle with on a given night. If they added, like you mentioned, a Buddy Hill, someone who's more competent from a three-point shooting range and someone that pairs with LeBron James, hell, just having that combo of DeMar, Hill, LeBron, that's just infinitely better than what they had. And their refusal to include like THT in trades last year was another storyline that kind of lingered around the Lakers. A lot of questions for Polinka in that front office. This has got to hurt. If you're Rob Polinka, if you're the front office coming off of this interview being publicly posted out there and <laughs> hindsight being 2020, you have to think that this is the year if so things bad. don't break right for it's the Lakers. It's so bad. It's, it's, it's championship so bad. or bust for them. Oh, but the Lakers can't win a championship. That's over now. Lakers yeah, can't win I know. Win so basically... It, it's bust for them. It, it, you got to change is... your expectations, of course. And, and from the DeRozan standpoint, like I know adding a three-point shooter is important. DeMar DeRozan's not a great three-point shooter, but there's this weird thing about the NBA where 
the the way the sport is set up and analytics and data tell us that even if you're not a great three-point shooter just keep shooting threes the best thing is to not, the, the three-point shot is is still for a not great three-point shooter better than a mid-range two-pointer now the difference with DeRozan is DeRozan is a great mid-range two-point shooter so the math changes there a little bit but the the thing in San Antonio DeRozan only took one point I believe 1.7, I haven't looked at it in a while. It's somewhere between one and two three-point shots a game his last season in San Antonio. And he took three and a half last year against or for the Chicago Bulls. And look at how the numbers change. DeRozan, like, just keep shooting threes even if you aren't a great three-point shooter because that shot is so valuable. So even if they don't add the shooting that they didn't have last year, they still would have been okay. DeRozan could have at least spaced the floor better than Westbrook, which again, like this year, Westbrook's not going to play on the floor at the same time as AD yeah. and LeBron, except for in crunch time. So officially he was 1.9 three-point attempts per game, which isn't mm-hmm. a lot, but at least hitting them at a more respectable clip. Uh, 35%, good. You know, you're not a 50, 40, 90 guy, but 35, you can live with. Compare that to Russ last season, he was attempting, see, he was attempting 3.4. He was attempting mm-hmm. more three-pointers. So he's kind of doing what you said, just attempt yeah. more. Except the problem is he was 29.8%. Yeah, the Lakers would have preferred someone else shoot the three-pointers. But the problem also was that Westbrook was so ball dominant that it meant LeBron and AD were kind of just standing around as Westbrook did that. And so let's also be fair to Westbrook. Westbrook was not as bad as everyone was saying last year. He just became the punching bag for the Lakers because he had shots that hit the back. And hey, that, that is the danger for DeMar because DeMar, be careful what you wish for. If he did end up with the Lakers and the Lakers aren't competing for a championship, still playoff team, but aren't competing for a championship, then all of that blame goes to DeMar DeRozan. It's an unfair position sometimes that you end up in when you are on these LeBron James-led teams, but it, it it's just kind of what you're signing up for. I think with DeMar, at least he could have kind of washed it away in the sense, I'm coming home, I'm with the Lakers, things are fine. Like you said, they could have been as good as last year's version of the Bulls. But it's also a shame, too, if you're Russell Westbrook, obviously a guy who played for UCLA, a guy from Los Angeles yeah. himself. He also had to get that experience and live. Yeah, they it. treated him like Dwight Howard. That was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. The Lakers fans absolutely destroyed him because Lakers fans are losers and they just they're not even just losers. They're also lazy. They, they just do the same shit over and over with different players. One year, it's Danny Green. One year, it's Dennis Schroeder. One year, it's Lonzo. One year, it's Kuzma. Now it's West. It's not just Lakers fan. It, it's not. It, it really is a LeBron James team type yeah. thing. The, these happen every year because we look at the 2018 Cavaliers. And I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit the Cavaliers that year were an awful team put together. But every single piece on that team that wasn't named LeBron James just got absolutely lambasted at every opportunity (laughs) Kevin Love ever after putting on a Cleveland Cavaliers jersey yes he was rewarded in the sense he got his championship ring but every year it just seemed like he was just getting criticized 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 dude to your point Saturday Night Live did skits about how bad the Cavs bench was Saturday Night Live was doing skits about the Cavs bench cleaning LeBron's jersey and like picking up his laundry and taking care of his kids and their point guard was a Roomba yeah. like even everyone back, was getting those even jokes go back off. to the heatles aside from the big three and actually too even with the big three Chris Bosch was taking a lot of heat 
while they were winning championships. And that bench was taking a lot of heat as well. One of those things where it, it's a gift and a curse. because it, And it was a gift when LeBron James was in his prime. Because LeBron could elevate you. And even though you had to deal with the criticism, you always knew that a finals appearance was on the other side. Now that you don't have that same assurity, I, I think that now it's kind of just all risk, not a lot of reward. Or at least the reward kind of has a cap ceiling. If you're a guy like Russell Westbrook, it sucks because you, you went from all-time great, beloved by many, to bum who basically could just be at the looked at as a street free agent. But I just can't believe that. That's Westbrook's in the like Carmelo Anthony phase of his career where everyone just makes fun of him because he thinks he's the player he used to be. And if Westbrook just decides to become John Wall and come off the bench, people will fall in love with Westbrook again. It's the dumbest thing and sports fans do it. And it's just it's silly. And if it had been DeRozan, it wouldn't have looked as bad as this. I mean, obviously, DeRozan would have taken the heat. But I think DeMar DeRozan, someone who's been very public about being depressed and trying to seek help, I think people would have given him at least a little bit better benefit of a doubt than a little bit and it wouldn't have looked as bad it wouldn't have looked as bad because demar's not going to turn over the ball as much as russ did part of the problem is just and this is not calling russ dumb or anything this is saying he makes dumb plays russ makes dumb plays and i think russell westbrook could admit to it or at least you'd like to think that he would admit to it his post-game press conferences wouldn't suggest it but I think that there has to be a certain level of self-reflection. A lot of those turnovers were on Russell Westbrook. And if you are just watching a Lakers game, you have to just be groaning every time he just makes one of these abysmal turnovers. DeMar's not going to do that. So I think from an optic standpoint, last year he would have not put himself as much as public enemy number one as Russ ended up doing. I think that would have been the biggest difference between the two guys. Uh, last year, like I said, if the Lakers made this move, I think they'd be better. I don't know if their championship better. That's all going to be like you mentioned, dependent on health. But, you know, it's fun for Lakers fans to dream. Think about the what if possibilities here. And I appreciate JJ Riddick, old man in the three, for asking these questions, getting this out there on a public forum. So thank you for the content today, guys.